All right, let's, uh, let's jump back in. Much love, good people. Good to see you all. Um, my name is Wally. Uh, so I'm the teaching pastor for Walker Harbor. If by chance we have not uh, got to connect, but I think we have for the most part. Uh, back from Israel. So this was my first week back uh, from Israel. Uh, we got back last Friday morning. Uh, so we're going to return, though, when we jump into the teaching. We'll, we'll make sure that we, we jump into, back into Israel, because that's some of the hope, is that we bring that here. So when we step into the scriptures, we actually can be in the scriptures. So that will be really good. Uh, but before we get going, in terms of the teaching, we have been going through the gospel according to Matthew, which we are... Uh, just acknowledging as the least likely disciple is how we've kind of positioned this whole thing because of who Matthew is, a young, likely a teenager, maybe upper teens, a tax collector for the Roman Empire, yet he is a Jewish young man. So that means his job is working for the enemy, uh, and yet he is taxing his very own people. So Matthew would be considered a traitor to his people, and so you can see why he's the least likely disciple of Jesus, because he finds himself in a bit of a mess in that whole thing. But then what we've been doing as we go through Matthew's gospel, there are themes within it that we've kind of break up into mini-series within this whole series, and so the one we're in right now we're calling Bad Theology. And so theology are basically thoughts, ideas, it's our understanding of God. And so anybody and everyone has theology, does theology, we think about this whole thing. And so we're talking about in this section of scripture, you essentially have Jesus addressing bad theology. That's a lot of what's happening is Jesus is addressing people's bad theology. And so we're going to talk about that, but before we go there... Bef um, before we left for Israel, our kids, uh, the kids ministry had put together some questions for those of us that went on the trip. Uh, so Terry DeVries, um, it was so crazy because we got back Friday morning and I had spent, so it was one of those things where every day, Terry and Sue and Dave Coutier and um, Doug and Lori Hahn, we would have breakfast, lunch, and dinner together, and we would be hiking every day, all day, all day, together, all day. And so we were together all the time. We would give these little blips called uh, go to sleep at night. We would give that little thing for people to do, uh, but then otherwise we were just together. Um, and that was something. And so then all of a sudden there was this, hey, I haven't seen you in a little bit, but Terry, we got home Friday morning. Friday evening, we were at a wedding rehearsal together. And then we were at the wedding uh, the next day. Uh, and so it was kind of like, oh, well, this, this helps um, a little bit. But it was a bit odd. But we're going to have them, Dave and Sue, uh, Doug and Lori and Terry, uh, next week, we would love to be able to uh, hear from them a little bit on what, what was some takeaways for your trip. Like, what did you... And, and we'll hear, hopefully you can talk to them and stuff, but we want to create some space because one of my favorite things was experiencing the trip through other people's eyes. Um, 
in, in our group, just seeing how they experience it for the first time. So that was something. But our kids asked questions of us going into it. Um, and I'd like to, we can whip through some of these uh, um, pretty quickly uh, that the kids were wondering about as we would go. So uh, these were questions our kids put together. Um, is it hot? Was one of the questions. So we typically... Most days, it was set, uh, we were in the mid to upper 70s, and then it would get into the 80s a little bit. That was more the typical day, but we had one day, in which was 108, and so that day was, um, was warm. Uh, but we started that day, uh, there was a handful of us that climbed, climbed Mar Mount Arbel, which was one of the more arduous climbs. We did that in the morning when it was still lovely, but then by the time that site was already done and we're heading to other places, woo, we were in the Galilee, which helped, but 108 in the Galilee was, there were times where you're like, breathing is not easy right now. So that was hot. There was that. Are you going to get baptized is the next question. Uh, I myself did not, but we baptized several, a number of people in the Jordan River. Uh, so we were in the Jordan River uh, where Jesus was baptized, if you will, and a number of people got baptized. Uh, and, and just even just experiencing, whether it was not their first time, but baptized in the Jordan River, that was great. Are you going to eat fish out of the Sea of Galilee? Picture. This is one of our meals. So this is called St. Peter's Fish. It is a, t a type of tilapia out of the Lake of Galilee. So caught fresh that morning, we eat it in the evening, so that was one of our meals. Um, so yes, would we eat fish out of the Sea of Galilee? We absolutely did. Uh, and it was, uh, but I, somebody pointed out, I don't think Jesus had French fries. Uh, uh, um, but that was kind of uh, lovely. So there was that. Uh, will you see where Jesus was born? No, we did not go to Nazareth. We were all around it, but we didn't go. There's not much there uh, now in, in the city of Nazareth. Uh, and then in Bethlehem, I'm sorry, did, would you see where Jesus is born? We were in Bethlehem. We didn't go to where the traditional site of where Jesus is born, because again, it's actually not that thrilling, but we went instead to a different place that had a cave that would very much help us understand how it would look and what it would be like where Jesus was born. And yes, we saw stone mangers, because that's what it was. So your nativity scene that you have in your mind is completely wrong, just so you know. It's not a wooden house frame. Um, that's not it. More, more of a cave, a uh, shepherd's cave. And then a stone uh, uh, feeding trough is what Jesus would have been placed in. So we did see that. We did experience that. Will you see a miracle is the next question. Yes, Many, over and over and over again. One, we were awakened every single day. Uh, one, we took breath. Um, one, we walked in the footsteps of Jesus. So that was something, but let me tell you, for me, the, the most incredible miracle, there were 47 of us that were singularly focused for nine days. 47 people in which their phones were simply cameras to take pictures. 
47 of us that were not responding to emails and texts and phone calls. Instead, we were singularly focused every day, waking, being together, and studying, and being immersed in the life of Jesus. Singularly focused. It was the biggest gift and it was the thing that was most jarring coming home and all of a sudden having to, oh, my text, and oh, no, no. Hey, could you do this while I'm doing this? Oh, so now I have to do five things at one time, and we call that normal. No. So to be singularly focused, that to me, and see all this group of people do so, miracle. Um, and lovely, and I would choose that over and again. Uh, what will you eat? Next question, while well, you saw the fish, that was one. Uh, but we did falafel. Um, that was uh, one thing you have in Israel. You got to have falafel, pita. So they this this bread that they make, uh, and we do with most meals. Uh, we did uh, what they call a bagel. It looked like a giant, what we almost think is a pretzel, and then you dip it in hummus, uh, date honey. Date honey is fantastic. So most of the time in the scriptures, when you're th seeing honey, it's date honey by the way, uh, more times than not. Uh, so we had honey, hummus, olives, every meal. I did. H hummus and olives, because that's, you're not getting any better there. Um, but it was wonderful. So they can tell you about some other things we ate. Uh, and then the last question is, are you scared? Not once. Uh, there was a, we had a storm, we showed last week, I showed a video of a storm on the Sea of Galilee, we were in our hotel room, but that, the, the, the lake was thrown onto our hotel, <laughs> and it literally trashed the lower level, we couldn't have breakfast that morning, because, that next morning, because it was gone, I, I mean, they kind of trashed it like it, the storm did. So I wasn't scared, but that was like a, whoa, what's going on? Many people were scared and just seeing, like, this is wild. Uh, scared as in you're thinking, oh, I know, but we read in the news, it's really wild there. Uh, our Ronan, our Israeli guide, said over and over in a 50 different ways, um, we are so much more safe in Israel than we are in the United States. So much more. So in scared in that way, not, not even close. One, because the tension in Israel is between Israelis and Palestinians, and it's religious, and so it's a, a certain kind of it. And as Ronan talked to us over and over, he said, see, we have that tension. In the United States, you have tension over everything. You fight about Republican, Democrat. You fight about skin color. You fight about rich and poor. You fight about everything, and so there's tension in all of your relationships in the United States, and we have a, a, this tension. And so we don't have the violence that you think, that you hear some blurp on the news, which why we were there. We were in Jerusalem, and I did get a text. We had, some of us had to sometimes have that on. Text from my boss, Tom, who said, oh, I just saw on the news, there's like this fighting in Jerusalem. Where are you? In Jerusalem. I have no idea what you're speaking of. We're right here. And in fact, we were really close to where it was. But in the Israeli news, we looked it up and you go, oh, there was this skirmish. Then we pulled up the American news and it said, there is an attack in Jerusalem. Very different language. Very different language. This one is fear-based and chaotic. This one is accurate, uh, is how I would say that. So was I scared? Nope. I was not. Um, it was uh, wonderful. Um, but then I came home 
to uh, a mass shooting, so apparently our kids can't go to school without being scared. Uh, there's that. Um, how are we doing this morning? Good? All right. So there's some of our questions from our kids, answer some of that. Uh, I'd like to pray and then we'll jump into the teaching. Uh, gracious God, what a gift to stop, to pause, to be singularly focused, hopefully now, that we can dial in and pay attention to what you have for us now as we open the scriptures and ask for you, Holy One, to speak to us to draw us near to you. And so may the meditation and posture of my heart, the words of my mouth, God, it is my prayer that they only bring honor and glory to you and help us find you, experience you, and walk with you in greater, more intimate ways. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. All right. Um, what happens when we read the words and walk out the ways of Jesus in a stilted way. Bad theology, as we would say it. In a society, in our society, that bends towards speed, convenience, consuming, and comfort, it can easily lead to a faith based on memes, memes, or on a me-centered life. That can be very easy, and then we get in trouble. Um, Theologian A.W. Tozer once said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. If we were to say to somebody, what comes to mind when you think about God, it's the most important thing about us because that's going to give us a view of how we view, of how we see the world, how we see ourselves even, how we understand ourselves, how we treat ourselves, and then of course how we in turn treat our neighbor, how we think of God. If God is scary, mean, out to get us, uh, then we begin to panic and we live in this tension. I, I got to do everything right. I got to be perfect. I've got to pull the right levers, push the right buttons. I need to get God on my side, maybe get God off my back. And then I see my neighbor. My neighbor's a threat. Are they going to keep me from knowing God? Do they know God? If not, then I need to avoid them. I need to try and protect myself from them. How we view God matters. Or if we understand God as a loving, generous grace-filled creator, and we understand that life is a gift, and we start viewing ourselves in a, as a child of God, as created in the image of this creator, and you go, oh, beautiful, and then when we look at our neighbor, whoever that may be, and you go, first and foremost, you have that which is deepest within you is being created in the, in the name and the image of this God as well, then I view you very differently. So what comes to mind when we think about God? Good question, A.W. Tozer. So then, uh, we're going to jump into our text and we'll go from there and look at what Jesus is going to do here because it's going to feel like it, it it goes fast. Here we go. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 11, verse 20 to 24. We'll start here. Then Jesus, he's in the Galilee region, began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed. 
because they did not repent. Now that word, real quick, repent. Teshuva is the Hebrew. It means to turn or return to God. You are walking a specific path. You begin to wander off the path just a little bit. They would say teshuva, return or turn back and start again so that you begin on the right path. When we often hear repent, we see the angry person with a sign out in front of someone's space and they're screaming and yelling and saying repent or you're going to burn in hell and they're like going... Well, that doesn't give us a good glimpse of what actually is going on when he says repent, return to God, return to the proper path, turn on this path, you are going in the wrong direction, and because I love you, I'm telling you, not because I'm trying to throw rocks at you kind of thing. Very different. So Jesus is like, whoa, 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 if you had paid attention, you would repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. That was a form of repentance. You put sackcloth on, which is uh, essentially camel hair clothing, and you wear it inside out. So you go, it's itchy, scratchy, it's uncomfortable, that's the point. So that you kind of have this sense of mourning and repentance. And then ashes, you just put out, and it's, it's one of the things they did. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, now here we go, this is going to be fun. Capernaum is how we call it. We're going to get at that in a moment. But he says, hey, you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to Hades or Hades. If the miracles that had been performed in you and had been performed in Sodom, as in Sodom and Gomorrah, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Why is so, Jesus so hard on these people? Why is Jesus so hard on these people? Did Jesus wake up on the wrong side of the bed? Why is he so cranky that it feels like, what's going on? Why is he throwing kind of this hellfire and brimstone at these people? Context, context, context. Jesus grew up in the small village of Nazareth, which had about 400 people at the time in the first century. 400 people in Nazareth. When it came time for Jesus to step out into his public ministry, he performed around 90% of the miracles that he did happened in the Galilee region, specifically the three cities that just got named, Bethsaida, Chorazin, and Capernaum. This is where Jesus did about 90% of his miracles. And then Capernaum was what he would make as his hometown. This is where he would kind of do his uh, adult living in this town. Now, real quick, I think the first slide up. This was great when we were in Capernaum. If you can read this, this is how you enter today. What does that say on there? Kafar Nahum. That's how it's pronounced. Capernaum is Greek. We're Greek. So Capernaum is Greek, but it's Kafar, and actually today, if you would see it, it's K-F-A-R, K-apostrophe-F-A-R, Nahum, N-A-H-U-M, village of Nahum. 
So we, and we say Capernaum. I just think that's funny because I've been saying, when we've been saying Capernaum, it's Kafar uh, Nachum, and it sounds really nerdy and a bit snobby, but it's, but it's a- a- accurate. And I just love that. So I took that picture, and I, I think I was like, Terry, look, see, that's what I said, remember? Doug, come here, didn't I say that? I was that guy. Um, so it was really quite lovely. But Capernaum, this, so we get about 18 miles, this village, 18 miles from Nazareth. So that's all the further he went to go into this Galilee region. We have to ask the question, why did Jesus go and do most of his ministry in this area? Why? Are these like the big cities? Like, is this going to Chicago, New York, and LA and really getting this thing out? What's going on? Do we ask these questions? Geography is such a teacher. So real quick, in the first century, the world's north and south, east and west trade routes go through Israel. Israel is the center of the world, if you will. If you're going to go east to west, north or south, and you're going to do any kind of trade or travel, you're going to go through this New Jersey-sized country called Israel. Now, and if you're going to go through Israel, there is this, and so I did my markings here. This road is called Via Maris, the way of the sea. That's what that means, Via Maris. This thing runs north and south. This is the major trade route. So it would go as north to Damascus, south to Egypt. And if you're going to do trade, you're going to do it along this route. And so if you're going to move in this area, then right in the middle of trying to do trade, trying to do this life, is this little tiny village known as, or this area called the, the Galilee. And Capernaum sits right there. Now, Capernaum in the first century is about 1,500 people. Not big, but it was global. Because you had people constantly going in and out doing trade. They're there selling in the marketplace their stuff from east to west, north to south. So if you're going in this area, the way we would see it is Capernaum, is as crazy as it is, if you were to have the worldwide, global, super internet, interweb, of the first century would be like the Galilee. If you wanted your stuff to get out to the world, that's where you want to be in many ways. That's how you would get it out to a global world. So if you're a first century rabbi and you wanted to get your yoke, which is your interpretation and teaching of the scriptures, and you wanted to get it to go, oh, let's say to the ends of the earth, you know where you would want to go? To the Galilee. And specifically, yeah, and you're in Kafar and Nahum, and you're going to be able to do that because people are going to go through, and if they're picking up on a miracle and they hear something, and then they're going to go back to Rome, they're going to go back to Asia, and they're going to take this message with them. Are you with me? Now, you see why, because if we're just like, well, that's just where it is. No, 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 no. Geography teaches us. So very important. We could go on and on about that, but we're tracking, right? We get this? It's lovely? Beautiful. Now let's go to a map. So this gives us a little bit, a little messy. Um, Tiberius, that's where we stayed, our hotel. Uh, Sarah taught last week, and she said John the Baptist, when he was thrown in prison and then eventually beheaded, he was in prison in Tiberius. So uh, Tiberius, then Magdala from Mary of... Magdalene, Mary of Magdala, that's that. Uh, Then Capernaum, Chorazin, Bethsaida. Next slide, I think, just to give you an idea, because I drew on this one too. They call it the religious triangle. You see why? 
boop, boop, boop. Okay, so they know these three cities as a religious triangle. For us, maybe think it's not a triangle, but think Zealand, Hudsonville, Granville. It's like your religious triangle. This idea like these small towns that are steeped in religiosity, they know things and you can make your way through there quite easily. And Jesus could hit these, and, and we did, we spent just walking, you could spend your day and you could hit each of these villages on foot, no problem. So the two cities mentioned then, like, okay, it said Chorazin and Bethsaida. If you were to actually have paid attention, then you would have got it. In fact, Tyre and Sidon, they would have got it if they heard, saw, experienced what you did. So Tyre and Sidon, I think we have a map with them. So now here's Tyre and Sidon. These are Phoenician cities, not too far away. So here's the Galilee region. You go up there, Phoenician non-Jewish cities were the object of God's judgment given by the prophets Isaiah and Ezekiel who rebuked them for having extravagant wealth and they were indulgent in many things but they were committed to not one thing. They had all sorts of wealth and resources and yet they were not hospitable. They were not welcoming to the stranger. They were not good to neighbor. Instead, they consumed and concerned with themselves. And so Tyre and Sidon, they were criticized by the Hebrew prophets and called out and said, oh, woe to you. And now Jesus uses that same language, but he says it to the religious people saying, woe to you because you've actually experienced miracle. You've heard and seen the life of God and you don't get it. You're not awake to what's happening. So if you're familiar with uh, the story of King Ahab's wife, Jezebel, at least the name rings a bell, right? Rings a bell, that's funny. Uh, Jezebel, Jezebel uh, led people to like worship all kinds of gods. We have, like we use that almost as a derogatory term today, like, oh, she's a Jezebel. Like, well, she's from Sidon. So she's from Sidon. So that, that, that's a little strike against them. But did you just catch Jesus said, hey, by the way, these, they're better off than you, Bethsaida and Chorazin. That's like a, uh-oh, right? We should go, oh, what's going on here? Um, Jesus then, he's not riffing on these villages, just making up out of the air. He, he's calling back to the Hebrew prophets using language that they would all know really well. Woe to you is a prophetic, that's a prophet's language, saying woe to you. So they're like, oh, we know this language. Uh-oh, we're in trouble. And then the word spoken to Capernaum, a Kafar, Nahum, is a remez, and a remez is hinting back. It's saying, when I say this, you would pick up and you go, oh, that language means I'm going to go back to this scripture. You would know that. And he uses language of the prophet Isaiah, who has a word for judgment on Babylon. So Isaiah, this is calling out, Isaiah was calling out Babylon, but now Jesus is saying, yeah, I'm comparing you, Capernaum, to Babylon, which, again, we should go, uh-oh, whoops. All your pomp has been brought down to the grave, along with the noise of your harps. Maggots are spread out beneath you, yikes, and worms cover you. 
How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You see the language compared to what was said about Capernaum. Oh, you think you're going to be raised up to the heavens? He uses this to say, oh, no, no, your opportunity, all that you have been given, you're going down to Hades, which Hades is the Greek word for the the land of the death the area of the dead. Hades was a Greek god, was the god of death. But it's a picture, Hades is one of two words that we translate as hell. So he's saying, no, 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 you you actually are going down to Hades, you're not being raised up. So this word he's giving Capernaum, ooh, it's strong. So he's saying, you've witnessed, Jesus has most powerful deeds, we call miracles. You've seen them, and yet you have not chosen to repent, to follow. You do not know the living God. You actually are very zealous. They're religiously zealous. So we think of, like, these aren't people who don't know. These are people who know intellectually but are not living with their feet the way of God. They instead are very religious in their knowledge and they're very zealous towards others. But that, Jesus said, is more destructive than being, like he is saying someone who says, I don't know God, and this person says, I do know God, but I'm actually going to live very judgmentally, chaotically, and I'm going to be vicious towards people with my Uh, religiosity, Jesus says that's worse than someone who doesn't know God. Are we tracking? Jesus says this person who says, I don't know God, and this person who says, I do know God, but doesn't actually know God, instead knows religiosity, Jesus says that's more destructive. Are we catching it? Okay, because wooey, our friend N.T. Wright, we call him Tom. Um, He's a New Testament scholar, kind of the foremost New Testament scholar. He says this really well on this. Better to be in Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone raining from heaven than fighting God's battles with the devil's weapons. (laughs) That's so, and he can say it because he has this British accent. He's this lovely, jolly, Santa Claus-like man. And he says things and we're like, that's really good. But if I say it, they're like, listen, baldy. That's too much. You get out of here. So um, you don't have to call names. My baldy. I just can't. Um, but this is strong. He's like, you, Sodom and Gomorrah, it's better to have fire raining down on us than to be standing and fighting God's battles with the devil's weapons. Hoo Just take that home for the next rest of your life. Yeah, these villages are not random places full of strangers to Jesus. This is really important. This has been Jesus' larger community as an adult. These people that he's speaking to, it's his baker. These are where he goes to the fish market and buys his fish each day. The synagogues in which Jesus teaches the most are these places. These are his insula. Insula is family. 
This is who you do life with every day. It's called an insula. And they would know it. This is how we do life and who we do life with. That's who these villages are to Jesus. It's where he's walking and connecting all the time. So when he calls them out, it's like going to the family reunion and saying, I've got a word from you and you're probably not going to like it. It isn't him yelling through a megaphone to a bunch of strangers on the street. It's sitting down with family over a meal and saying, you don't get it. Whoo, we're having a good time, aren't we? Jesus is calling out people who lived in proximity to him but didn't purpose their lives in following him. They're in proximity, but they're not actually following. Uh, next picture. Um, this is uh, Kafar Nahum. This is the village. So, this, this, like, we have 1,500 people. These are a bunch of, bunch of houses. These are a bunch of houses. Their houses, you take one of our average homes and you can fit about four or five of their homes in it. Just these little things in that spaceship there. <laughs> it does look like a spaceship. That's a church that they've built over um, what is understood as Peter's home where Jesus slept and spent most of his time. So that's underneath the spaceship. It's a way of preserving it and protecting it by building a, but that's actually a Franciscan church above it. <laughs> kind of cool. Uh, it's interesting. These three villages though, Capernaum, Bethsaida, Chorazin, are the most religious in the Galilee region. Now, similar to, let's get to us a bit. A three-year nationwide research found the most religious cities in the United States are, ready? Most religious cities in the United States, Knoxville, Tennessee, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and Greenville, South Carolina. And including, then they include the surrounding suburbs, Grand Rapids comes in at 21st in the country as most religious. But if you take away kind of the city center and you just go to the suburbs of GR, it would be a top five city in the United States of religiosity. So this word, Jesus is speaking to Capernaum, Bethsaida, and Chorazin, would be Jesus standing before Grand Rapids and saying, woe to you, you've been fully aware because, oh by, you're in the Guinness Book of World Records for having the most church buildings in uh, one street, Baldwin Street, going through Jenison and Hudsonville. You're in the Guinness Book of World Records for most church buildings in one, uh, one street. Yet the problem is you are not following the person of Jesus and how you live and breathe and have your being. Are we feeling it this morning? I'm bringing just a really holiday weekend good times though. <laughs> this is what I was assigned. Great, I come back from Israel and this is what they hand me. The phrase, woe to you, are the words of a prophet. It might be similar to Jesus saying, woe to you, Hudsonville, Zealand, and Granville. And if, if, if Las Vegas, Los Angeles, and Portland were as aware of the Christ among you as you are, they would certainly have repented. If they had the, um, the insight, the teaching that you've experienced... If they had, they would have repented. We love to say, oh, Las Vegas, Los Angeles, these awful places. 
Jesus instead is saying, well, actually, if they have heard what you had heard, they would have repented. Oh, it will be better for them on the day of judgment than for you. Ouch. This warning is yet another opportunity, but that's the thing for people to wake up and return to the divine, to be covered in the dust and follow in the ways of Jesus. The religious pride is toxic, devastating, and heartbreaking, so please turn or return to the living Christ. That's your invitation, and it's an invitation. Really, really important note, Jesus is not calling out a system of religiosity from a place of bitterness. This is a good word for me. It's not bitter and angry. It's rather with a broken and bleeding heart. Family, I love you so much. I so want you to wake up and get it. That's why I'm saying this. Not because I'm angry, not because I want to put you down, but because I want you to participate in the love and life of Christ. That's why. Uh, Said well by the late Thomas Merton, when I criticize a system, they think I criticize them, and that is, of course, because they fully accept the system and identify themselves with it. Whoo! This is decades ago that Otami said this. What he's saying, when I critique a system, when people go, don't you cut on me, I'm not cutting on you, I'm cutting on a system. Oh, I see what happened is you've now made yourself so immersed in the system, you take that as if it's personal rather than calling out systems. Are you hearing this political land? When I say, you know, that's broken. What? You calling me broken? No, that system is broken. So we need to be able to hear that. Jesus simply wants people to awake, awaken with a humble and receptive heart, a childlike trust in the person of Jesus the Christ which is found in how he continues. Matthew eleven twenty five 25 to 27. At that time, Jesus said, uh, now, now, this is amazing. He's just been shouting, woe to you, to people. Now he's going to turn and have a very public conversation with his Father for all to experience and hear. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Do you see these, this word reveal and revealed? Really important word. It's apocalypto. Go ahead and say apocalypto. Guess what word we get from that? Apocalypse. It means to uncover and make known. We often say, oh, uh, people go, yeah, I think in Revelation it talks about the apocalypse. No, 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 no. The, the scriptures talk about many apocalypses. All the time the Bible's talking about apocalypses as in revealing, uncovering, showing you. That happens throughout. Jesus is revealing. Oh, I praise you, Father, because you reveal this. You show. Some people have missed it. They haven't, they haven't caught on. It's not because it's hidden from them secretively because their eyes are closed to it. They're blind to it. They're not paying attention. Their hearts are closed. They're not open. But you, Father, have been revealing it. And you know who has picked it up, Jesus says? Kids. 
children have got it. They see it. They're catching the heart. Oh, I bless you, God, that these kids are picking up on it. But this is what's fascinating. He says the wise and the learned are missing it. Real quick. The, the wise and the learned, um, wise and learned is um, the, the professionals. That's what these words mean. The professionals the scholars, the ones who have studied and put this together. And so those words mean like the elite have actually missed it. It's like they've been studying for the test, got all the right answers, and then were asked, and what does it mean? And they went, I don't know. I got an A on my paper. Yes, because you memorized the answers, but you didn't know the content. Are you with me? So he's calling this out, um, which is really interesting. Uh, then this other key phrase. He says, Father, it was, um, yes, Father, this is what you were pleased to do. I think we have this on there. That word pleased here is the word uh, eudokia. Go ahead and say eudokia. It's a fun word. Like, put that one in your back pocket. Eudokia. Um, good pleasure, delight, desire. I, I want us to hang here. This is what you were, so again, when we think of God, do we think of God, do we think of it's God's good pleasure, it's God's delight, it's God's desire for you to see, hear, and know the living God. That's his good pleasure. God is a pleasure seeker. Whoo, that's so needed. Is that how God has been communicated to you? that God is about eudokia. Really, really good. Um, sometimes we bury things in academia and theological jargon. It's too often that life then with the divine is pitched as a secret club that requires a secret code to enter. The divine only communicates with special people who have somehow unlocked the secret door which holds access to the magical wizard hidden in the clouds. Yet we just read and see here a tender conversation, an intimate conversation between father and son, son and father, in which Jesus doesn't talk about codes and techniques. He's a son talking with his dad in public and he says, it gives you pleasure to reveal your heart to people. I bless you for that, Father, because you love to reveal your heart. Who? And who is the recipient of his Father's generous revealing? Children. Children. Which they're all cranked up, and we're like, man, they're making all kinds of noise. Well, yeah, of course. They're kids. They're having a good time. Are we having a good time? Uh, okay, so here's right. The supposed wise, the word sophos, which means expert, and the learned sunetos. Sunetos is the word. It means those who have put it all together mentally. So those two words, expert and those who have put it all together mentally, are the ones who have missed it. <laughs> Why? Because it's like they've learned it here and missed it here. And it's not one or the other, it's what? It's syncing them up with our hearts and heads would be tied together in love. 
The church as an institution does a disservice when making the divine seem unattainable unless you have this otherworldly piety or seminary degree. Well then, then you can. These verses show a son sharing his love and gratitude for his dad and his dad taking pleasure in generously dousing his kids with love. Or again, let's go back to N.T. Wright. He says it like this. Jesus had come to know his father the way a son does, not by studying books about him, but by living in his presence, listening for his voice, and learning from him as an apprentice does from a master, by watching and imitating. That's such a gorgeous picture that we would follow in the footsteps of Jesus. We follow, we walk, we obey. Yes, because there is this love relationship. This is one of my biggest takeaways from my time in Israel. I studied and prepared, and when we finally arrived in the land, a group of people quickly became a family. And what knit us together was not giant abstract ideas about God, but walking attentively in the presence and footsteps of the living God. Together. It was who God is and how God has been working in the story of our lives. It's, a, it's, it's actually about a rather simple love unveiling a profound impact on all of us. I would call this a forest book. Forrest Gump kind of faith. Do you remember this scene if you saw the movie? I might not be a smart man, Jenny, but I know what love is. I might not be a smart man, but I know what love is. It's not about brains, being able to get A's, but it's a heart that's open to the creator who made our heart, being open and receptive and listening to that heartbeat of God and going, I, I get that, I pick up on that, I catch that. It's not, and it's not a test that I pass, it's a relationship I participate in. Jesus is a window into the heart of God, which is why Jesus said, follow me, not worship me. That's sometimes really odd for us to hear. Jesus never one time said, worship me. He said, follow me. And that will put you in awe and reverence before my Father, who you will, with your life, give to worship. But Jesus didn't say, worship me. He said, follow me. Which is really helpful. It's easy to make God, the Bible, and church about theological statements, dry doctrines, and dogmas, leaving God as distant, maybe absent, and a mystery that can only be accessed through secret codes, degrees, and dissertations. It can all become very exhausting. So Jesus offers a gorgeous invitation for all people. In verse 28, he says this, Jesus then says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. So he just went on this rant. He called the woe to me, but then he says, No, here's the thing. Come. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke. That's my interpretation. My understanding of the scriptures, my teachings. Take all of this on you and learn from me, for I am what? 
gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Because they've experienced the law. They've experienced things to be very burdensome and heavy laden. And he says, no, 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 not what I give you. It's not. Now, I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase that goes like this. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. This is a picture of what it looks like to know and walk with Christ, to experience rest and to live with a depth of soul. Learning the unforced rhythms of grace, that's the heart's desire of Jesus. This is an invitation to move away from the toxic nature of religious rigmarole and to rest in the love, grace, compassion, mercy of our divine Father. Maybe you've been running laps on the religious treadmill, trying to please your parents, impress your neighbors, or thinking you'll win God's attention or get God off your back if I just jump through these religious hoops. God's desire is not to be a burden on your back, but the desire is to be a respite for all who have been carrying around all sorts of religious baggage. May you find life in these words. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. This is the heartbeat of the divine, the unforced rhythms of grace, which deflates the ego while simultaneously breathing fresh life into the soul. One more picture. This is after we climbed on that hot day, Mount Arbel. Standing on top of Mount Arbel, I took a picture because what I took a picture of now is our cities. Chorazin, Capernaum, and Bethsaida are all right here. Standing on top of our bell, it's understood that Jesus would get away and have quiet time with his father, the way he would understand it. He would go and they said he'd pull away and have solitude. This is one of the places they understood Jesus to have gone up our bell and just get away, have some solitude, and have this time. And when you stand there, you can look out and go, and this is where everything, it's Jesus takes his disciples up and says, look, this is where everything will take place. Will you follow and get it? Or will you be down there missing it? Because you're jumping through hoops, you're running the rat race, and you just miss the heartbeat of God. Or will you receive the unforced rhythms of grace? Now, when uh, we were up at our bell, I did a teaching at the top of our bell, and I was told just before I got ready to teach, we did the hike up, and they said, you, you have 15 minutes. Um, you all are here. Imagine saying to me, I have 15 minutes to teach. And oh, by the way, we want to have some time for people to have um, reflection and some quiet time alone. Oh, so in other words, I have eight minutes. 
And so I had to take a teaching that had been preparing, oh, you know, for three years and go, whoop. But, and say, let's create some time. And we only got to have a few minutes of quiet time. And essentially, I gave him a word. Hineni. Hineni was our word. Hineni in the Hebrew is here I am. It's when God says to Moses, are you paying attention? And Moses says, Hineni, here I am. It's Samuel when he is like, I hear this voice. And Eli says to him, oh, when you hear that voice, say Hineni and be fully present. Don't be distracted and say, here I am. You have my undivided attention, God. And so we just took some time and said, well, we just Hineni this morning on Mount Arbel. Take some time and just say, God, here I am, speak. Now, what I was going to do, we'll do this morning real quickly. There's a prayer uh, I call kenosis prayer. In Philippians, Paul is writing in chapter 2, and he, he speaks of Jesus emptying himself of all divinity in order to live in solidarity with humanity. He empties himself of divinity in order to sacrifice and serve. That word empty in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, you see the word empty himself. Empty is the word kenosis. And so what, what, what I do is a kenosis prayer, and to do a kenosis prayer on our bell, well, that's something. But most mornings, I do my best to situate myself after I get my coffee, go down, sit in my office early in the morning, and then I sit down and I do kenosis prayer, which is I put my hands out and I sit. I take some breaths and I put my hands out. And then I say, all of the monkey mind, all of the scattered thoughts, all of the running around, all of the calendar stuff that's jumbled in my head, I go, fall, fall into my hands. And I pretend, imaginatively, dump it out into my hands. Get all of that rat race and just empty it. And then I do this. I want to empty myself of the ego, of all the things that, yeah, 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 well, we're just going to stop and we're going to dump those on the floor. Then I'm going to flip my palms open again and now just take a deep breath and say, here I am. Father God, what do you have for me here, now, on this moment? What are you saying? What are you up to? What do you need my heart to hear? And then I want to receive that with open hands. So we're just going to take a, a couple minutes and do that and then respond with, with a song about our good good father. But I just want to take a minute and you can close your eyes and you're worried about anyone looking around and, and, and it's just open your hands and say all of the things, the schedule, the whoa, what's next? I got to get home. The crock pot's probably really taking that thing to task right now. Well, all right, turn it off and let it fall into your hands and dump it out and say, God, what are you what have you been saying here this morning? How have you been speaking? How are you nudging and pulling on my heart? Just take a few minutes and absorb the Father's good pleasure.